I want you to save me. Please save me. Jake, I need you to save me. A drunk Peruvian man named Nexar knelt desperately in front of me on his knees, weeping, crying out, Salvame, Jacobo, por favor, salvame, saying, Save me, Jake, please. And I started to weep over him as I tried to explain in, in broken Spanish and Daniel's translating with me. And I'm telling him, Nexo, I can't save you. I can't do that. I don't have the power to save you. Your only hope is Christ. He alone can save. I can't even save myself. What makes you think that I could save you? And as we, the, the Peru team and I are, are sharing the gospel with Nexar, um, we're telling him, we're, we're pleading with him to not consider his reputation uh, as the drunk of Corta Peru uh, or, or his, his, his relationships with even his family members and saving them. Or we, we're pleading with him not to consider uh, just a, an easier way of life. But we're pleading with him to know the King of Kings to bow down and surrender his life to the one who deserves your worship. And I'm looking at Nexar right in the eyes, and I get on my knees pleading with him, and I'm saying, Nexar, your eternity is at stake here. This isn't a game. The gospel is not a game. He isn't just another idol that you worship, that you hope to give what you want. He is the king of kings. And you see, in Cordova, Peru, uh, the, the people have all of these statues. They have all of these pictures in their houses and, and in this really old uh, building that they consider a, a, a Catholic church down at the square. And they put these statues up and they, they go to them and they worship these statues, these idols. And they're asking them for prosperity and health and, and even salvation. And so in a culture where, where idols have become gods, it makes sense that Nexar is pleading with missionaries to save him. Because we're just another thing to, to look to, to pray to. And Nexar is, is the town drunk that, that we encountered in Cordova last week. And if you're not familiar, uh, Pastor Jeremy mentioned Cordova. It is a, it's a small village up in the Andes Mountains that Ashland Church has been investing in and bringing the gospel to for over 10 years. And so I am thankful to be a part of this church body who has a heart for the nations as we see uh, so many college students and adults going to the nations, going to different states in, in, the, in the U.S. and going to the ends of the earth. And as we are there in Peru, we are sharing the gospel with Nexar and as we're pleading with them, we realize just how desperate these people are to know Christ. They need Jesus. Their only hope is Jesus. Our only hope is Jesus. But the devastating reality is that right now, at this moment, there are over 2 billion people who don't know Christ who are unreached. This isn't just the unsaved. These are people who have no access to the Gospel. 
Two billion people who've never heard the gospel, who can't hear the gospel because there is no gospel there. In the region of the Andes Mountains, um, there only 4% of the people are considered evangelical Christians. This is the, the area, the region that Cordova sits. 4%. To put that in perspective, uh, roughly 15 of us in this room would know the grace of God. 15. The rest of us, we would only know the wrath of God. That should shake us, church. That should make us tremble. The need for global missions is massive. And as we look at our text this morning, we see that the book of Romans lays out one of the most practical mission plans that we see in all of Scripture. Apostle Paul wrote the book of Romans, and he's on his third missionary journey uh, to, the, to the city of Corinth. And uh, this is around 57 A.D. And as, when we look at Romans, as, as we see Paul's writings, often we think of this book as just a, a theological treatise. Uh, a theological argument that Paul is building. And it's true. Paul is constantly building from Romans 1 to the end of Romans. He starts with the fall of man and the problem of sin. And he, and he goes into the redemption of Christ and the only hope of Jesus and the consummation. He, he builds this argument all the way through the book of Romans and its layers and layers of theology. However, Paul doesn't just write out a theological dictionary. What he does is he, he takes all of this rich theology and he places it on practical missions. And all of his mission efforts are in turn rooted and grounded in theology. In other words, the book of Romans speaks like this. You can't be on mission if you don't know the God of the mission. And you can't know the God of the mission and avoid being on his mission. That's why the book of Romans starts and finishes with the exact same topic. It's bookended with the same theme. And that's Paul's missionary plans. Romans 1, verses 13 through 15 says this. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians, both to wise and to the foolish. I'm so eager to preach the gospel to you who are also in Rome. He's talking about going to Rome to preach the gospel in Rome. It's his plans to go. And then at the end of Romans in chapter 15, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. Practical missions. Romans starts and ends with Paul's plans to bring the gospel. Theologians would call this a, a chiastic structure, which just means that all of this rich theology, theology that we see in the book of Romans is oriented on whatever is on the beginning and the end. 
Everything that is found in the book of Romans points to the reason why the book was written, and that is for missions. Romans' overarching purpose is to tell us one central thing, that God is in the business of calling every tribe, every tongue, and every nation to himself. But in order to be on mission, you have to know the God of the mission. Look at how Paul frames this for us in the first section. He wants us to have a a clear view of his kingship over the nations. Look at verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Y'all, these are some of the sweetest words that we find in all of Scripture. But I think verses like this that are so familiar to us, that we've heard over and over and over, they start to lose their potency in our hearts. We become numb to the greatness of God. And my prayer is that right now that we would be awakened to the power of King Jesus. Because six times Paul uses this word, Lord. Six times in these eight verses he says, Lord, Lord of all. Jesus is Lord. Why? Why is Paul using this particular word to describe Jesus? Because I think he's, he's trying to tell us something. He's trying to, to show us and call us to, to see Jesus for who he really is. He is Lord of lords. He is King of kings. Do we really understand who we worship? Do we really understand who it is that we worship? Because a, a lot of times, I think we approach Jesus differently. Sometimes I think we can approach him like he's our therapist. You need emotional relief, right? Go to Jesus. You got some messy stuff in your life, you got to get cleaned up, Jesus can help you. Go to church, get you cleaned up. You want to feel better about your life? Jesus has got a really positive, encouraging message for you. Right? We, we meet with him for 45 minutes, maybe 50 minutes a week. It's our session with Jesus. And, and then we, we hope that somehow our crazy lives are a little bit better as we leave. It seems so clinical, so cold. If we approach Jesus as our therapist, maybe we approach Jesus differently. And maybe he's, he's not our therapist, but he's our BFF. You know, we, we love Jesus. He's my best friend. I can share my struggles with him. He understands me. I can tell him my biggest secrets, and he's not going to tell anyone. I may just come to him when I need advice. Maybe if he's a, an acquaintance, then we may, you know, hang out with him if it's convenient for us. But if something else better comes along, we blow him off. If he's simply a nice guy that we read in the Bible who healed people, who helped people with their problems, oh, we've got it so wrong. That's not who Jesus is. When you think about Christ, when you think about Jesus right now, is he safe? Is he tame? Because I have news for you. He's not safe. Jesus is not tame. C.S. Lewis writes in, in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he's talking about Aslan, the, the, the lion. 
and uh, who represents Christ in this story. And, and Susan, she asks, is he quite safe? I, I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, says Mr. Bieber. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. If you're viewing Jesus as your BFF or your therapist, I can promise you, I know you're miserable. I know it. You know why? Because when you see him that way, when he's just something like an idol, like Nexar was viewing Jesus, when you see him that way, you want his mission to serve your own mission. His mission becomes subservient to yours. And when things aren't working out for you, you become frustrated. That's because you aren't serving his kingdom, but you're trying to use Jesus to serve your kingdom. And listen, you make a really bad king. Stop trying. Because he's not just a king. He is the king who has authority over everything. His sovereignty knows no end. That means every world power is under the sovereign rule of Jesus. Kim Jong-un, Vladimir Putin, President Donald Trump, they're all under the authority of Christ. He, he owns everything. He is sovereign over everything. Every worm that crawls on the earth is under the sovereign rule of King Jesus. Every natural disaster, every event in the history of the world is under the sovereignty of Jesus. So, when Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved, those aren't idle words. Paul's not giving us a formula to memorize on how to be saved. These aren't words that the Romans repeated at a middle school youth conference to be saved. The Romans valued power over everything. Power. So when Paul calls the Romans to acknowledge and submit to a different power other than Rome, it's got consequences. Those Romans that Paul was calling to and, and writing to to follow Christ understood what he was saying, I think, better than the way we can. You see, Romans had a common phrase in that day. As they would pass a centurion or they would pass a fellow Roman citizen in order to be recognized as a good Roman citizen, you would say the phrase, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. So to replace that name with any other name, that's treason. So when someone is signing up to be a follower of Christ by publicly saying Jesus is Lord, they're signing their death sentence. To say Jesus is Lord is treason and punishable by death. Paul is saying that this king who has ultimate authority over everything is worth your life and he's worthy of your death. Verse 11 says, For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Will not be put to shame. I think us Americans, we, have a, we don't have a very strong category for this word, shame. The Jews and the Gentiles that Paul was writing to, they, they did. 
Uh, just like many Asian cultures today, they have a, a foundation for what it means to be uh, in honor or to be in shame. To be in shame is to be an outcast. Right? It's, to, it's to be an enemy of your family, to be thrown out of your family. You're no longer welcome here. You are in shame. It's to be treated lesser than human. And Paul is using this word shame more than just a, a cultural way. He's, he's referring to shame according to our salvation. Every person in the history of the world was born this way. We were born in shame. We were born in our sin. You were born in shame before a holy God. We were outside the family of God. We were considered enemies of God. And all two billion people in the world that are considered unreached are in rebellion against God. And any of us who have not surrendered to Christ, we're still in rebellion against God. Paul says earlier in Romans as he's building his argument that, that we choose our own shame, that we, we decide that we, we choose ourselves over the Creator. And we embrace our shame. It's crazy. But God, He doesn't leave us there. He doesn't leave us in our shame. Instead, for those of us in Christ, he, he took our shame. And he nailed it to a cross. Christ who, who loved us while we were yet enemies of God. Who died for our rebellious hearts. Who now sits in heaven enthroned as king. Looks at you and looks at me. And he says, brother, sister, you will not be put to shame. You are mine. I bought you. I give you my righteousness. That's the gospel. It has nothing to do with us. It's his righteousness. Look at verse 12 and 13. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This king, this Lord of all, who has ultimate authority over everything, who takes our shame. Guys, he's also on a mission. And this mission cannot be stopped. Because the same Lord is Lord of all. And anyone who calls on his name will be saved. Anyone. Not just the Jews. Not just the Gentiles. Not just Americans. Not just Africans. Not just Scandinavians. Not just North Koreans, not just Quechua people in Cordova, Peru. Every single nation, anyone who calls on him will be saved. His kingship is directly tied to his mission to save the nations. Look at Psalm 86, verse 9. It says, All the nations that you have made, all the nations that you have made, shall come and worship before you, O Lord and shall glorify your name. Do you see that his kingship and his sovereignty is the greatest fuel for our mission? His kingship and sovereignty is the best ammunition that we have to go to the unreached. I've heard Christians, they'll tell me that, okay, Jake, you really believe in this sovereign God? Do you really believe that God is perfectly sovereign over everything? Yes, I do. 
Well, why even go to the nations? Why even do missions? Why even tell people about Jesus? What's the point? If God is sovereign, why even work? Why even do anything? That's the wrong question to ask. Because if, if God is sovereign over every nation, why would I not want to be on the most successful mission in the history of the world? That means when we go to the unreached people groups, when we go to New Orleans, when we go to East Asia, when we go to Peru, we're not wondering if God will save. We're wondering when he will save. Every nation, every tongue will praise his name. It's sure promise. God promises it in his word. And he says that the harvest is plentiful. That's a good promise. There are, there's a plentiful harvest. But he also says that the labors are few. In church, we are those labors. We have to have a proper view of the one that we labor for. In order to be on mission, we have to know the God of the mission. Do you see Jesus clearly right now? Do you have, we have to get this right. Because when we encounter the, the amazing grace of Christ and we see him for who he is, we get his heart for the nations. We don't, we don't have to worry about mustering this up on our own. Christ gives us his heart for the nations. And this is how God has always operated with his people. In Isaiah, Isaiah 6, we, we see that he sees the, the, the majesty in the throne room of Christ. And what does he do? After seeing it, he says, here I am. Send me. The disciples who spent three years with Jesus ended up dying for the gospel. Paul, who, who wrote Romans, encountered the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. And after seeing Jesus, he became the greatest missionary in the history of the world. Though we, we can't prescribe all of those experiences to our own life, what we can do is prescribe how they encountered Christ, and then their hearts were bent towards the mission. When we know the God of the mission, we are sent on his mission. Look at verse 14 and 15. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Do you see all of this theology of Christ is rooted in practical mission? The Bible's talking about feet. The Bible's talking about our mouths. Mouth and feet. And this, is, this is where missions get so practical. Just to put what I said in, in reverse order, what, what Scripture said. Number one, someone is sent. Number two, the one who is sent preaches the gospel. Number three, people will hear the gospel. Number four, some people will believe the gospel. Number five, those who, call, those who believe call on the Lord for their salvation. This isn't rocket science. Paul quotes Isaiah 52. says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings the good news. To reach the unreached, those who do not know Christ, we have to spend and be spent for the sake of the gospel. Because beautiful feet, they still sweat. They still smell. They're dirty. They're on the mountains. They're still beautiful, but they 
They still sweat. And if, if you've ever seen my feet, they are, uh, God has a really bad sense of humor if he thinks these are beautiful. Um, William Carey, who, who was a famous missionary in India, he says that Christians, all Christians, are part of the mission. He, he's got this, this analogy. He says, one's holding the rope. Right? One's holding the rope while the other's going down in the well. One's holding the rope while the other goes down in the well. But both people have scars on their hand. Everyone's affected. What has the mission of Christ cost you? Jesus says it will. It may cost you your reputation at work. It may cost you your bank account. Jesus says it may even cost you your life. I heard another, uh, a new phrase the other day. An article read that a, a speaker, a, a Christian speaker, came to a Christian college uh, with Christian students at the college, and he spoke on the evil of abortion. He spoke on the evil of racial issues. And a group of Christian college students, they protested. And they used this phrase. They said, your words make me feel unsafe. Your words make me feel unsafe. That mindset, that mindset that's, that is taking over a generation that values safety over everything else. This is devastating. Listen, if your safety is your top priority, if, you're, if the safety of your kids is your top priority, how are you ever going to give your life for Christ? While I was in Cordova, Peru, I started thinking about my wife and my kids, and it's been like four or five days since I've seen them, and my mind starts racing. I start having like the worst possible thoughts of, oh my goodness, Titus and Lincoln, they're, they're probably sick or they're, they're probably hurt somewhere. I hope Emily's okay. Like my mind's just racing about their safety. And then I just stop. And I'm convicted. I'm thinking, why is this the first thought that pops into my head? Why is the safety of, of my family the first thought that pops into my head? I'm not saying, hear me carefully, I'm not saying praying for safety and health of our family is a bad thing. No, it's a good and right thing to do. But when it precedes our desire and our prayer to become risky, bold gospel warriors, when it precedes our desire for our children to, be, to have this risky flavor about their lives, to count their lives not their own, then it's a problem. We have to be a people who desire to be risky with our lives, who, who are willing to give and go. Look at verse 14. And 15 again. And hear this risky flavor that the scripture calls us to. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news when we put all of our stock in the safety of our lives, and we, try to, we do everything we can to, 
to, be, to preserve ourselves. Jesus has something to say about that. He says, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever would lose his life for my sake will find it. Here's the deal. God doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. We have the privilege of being on mission for the King of Kings. And God, we know, is constantly at work among the nations. And we can plan and we can strategize on how to take the gospel to the nations. And we should. Scripture calls us to do that. Scripture calls us to be diligent on how we can take the gospel to the nations. But we should hold our plans so loosely and ask the Lord His will. We, we write everything in pencil. We're handing Him the eraser every time. Verse 16 says, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Christ is our, is our only hope. It is the only hope for the nations. Nexar, the man that I was talking about earlier, uh, who we were pleading with to believe in Jesus, who were asking to count not his life, his own, but to see it as, as that he was bought, that Jesus has died for him. We were pleading for him to consider his eternity. We could not save him. This team of missionaries could not save him. And I, I remember going to bed a few nights in a row as we had talked with Nexar, just asking God, why won't you save him? Like, you brought us here, Lord. You, you put us here, and he's wanting to be saved. Why won't you save him? And I struggled with that. And then God showed us that he had other plans in Cordova, Peru. We, when we left our conversation with Nexar, we encountered someone else in the village. We encountered a, a woman, and her name was Charo. Many of you uh, who have been to Peru know this name, Charo. Many of you probably know Charo. Um, she's quite possibly the most difficult person in Cordova and possibly all of Peru to talk with because she's so hard-headed. And every time that you bring the gospel to her, every time you try to talk about Jesus, she looks off, like doesn't look at you at all, and she changes the topic. She does not want to talk about Jesus. Well, we encounter her, and uh, this day she invites us to go milk her cows with her. So we're like, great, opportunity to share the gospel with Chara. And so I, I, I've kind of already told the missionary team, like, you know, don't be disappointed when she starts to just change the topic on you. And so I tell Nathan Sears, uh, who joined me uh, to go to Ica to bring the, the missionaries to Cordova, I tell Nathan, I say, hey man, I want you to share the gospel with Chara. And so he begins telling the story of redemption as, as Daniel is translating. And, uh, and I hear Charo uh, just starting to, to ask questions. And I look back at, at Megan and Rachel, and I look at them like, guys, start praying right now. God is doing something crazy because she has never started asking questions. And then I hear her start confessing sin. I'm like, what is going on? This is Chara. Nathan Sears uh, 
He has never flown on a plane before. He has never been out of the country before. I don't know if he's ever been past Somerset or Richmond for that matter. He decides that he wants to go on a mission trip. And I say, let's go. And, and so he raises support in a, in a week's time. And he gets on the plane with me. And here he is on the side of a mountain in Cordova, Peru, walking to milk a lady's cow, <laughs> talking about Jesus. I mean, can missions get any more practical than that? And for the first time, I see her asking questions, confessing sin, and, and an hour passes as Daniel and Nathan are sharing the gospel with her. And we get to the cows, and they start praying with her. And she bends her knee to King Jesus. Charo, out of all the people in Cordoba, hears the words of Christ and believes on them for her salvation. She's the last person I thought God would save. And yet God brings her from death to life. And this is, gets even better because we realize something. We realize that Charo is Nexar's wife. And now, we go back to the village, and Charles like, come on in. I'm going to make you dinner. And here comes Nexar, coming on in. And this time, Charo's not hesitant about the gospel. She's not uh, distant. She's not changing the topic. But we begin telling Nexar the gospel again for like the tenth time. And Charo's right there, sitting next to us, encouraging us in the gospel not ashamed of the gospel, hearing us tell her husband about Jesus and how he changes everything. We're still praying for Nexar to bend his knee, but we know one thing is true. God says that my gospel cannot be stopped. His mission cannot be stopped. He says, I will have the nations praise my name. And while we are free to make every effort to bring the gospel to the nations, we hold our plans so loosely because we know that he is the king of this kingdom. We get to be a part of his mission. Let's live in light of knowing our king, really knowing him, his authority. And let's live in light of the mission that he has placed us all on. Let's pray.